for tuning into the 471st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, Earl's Daryl D. Lane, as always, wherever you are, however you be listening, thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be a Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iRadio, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via. Going to have a great podcast for all you guys today. Going to have Greg Bell. He covers the Seattle Seahawks for the News Tribune. Uh, we had a great conversation. We talked about Pete Carroll, how long he is going to be in Seattle. The old Legion of Boom Seattle days with Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, Bobby Wagner, Earl Thomas, uh, Russell Wilson, kind of the ending of his tenure in Seattle, the quarterback competition between Drew Locke, Geno Swift. We really got into a lot of things, and I really appreciate it, Greg for coming on the pod. And before we get to that, I'm going to give my shameless plug. As always, first-time listener, thank you. But subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with your friends and family, whether it be Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc. Check on the description below. Specifically, if you use Spotify, I have everything timestamped. You can click on the timestamp, and we'll send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to. Folks, it is for your convenience. Follow me on Twitter at NightTrain underscore Lane. And subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane. You will find it. I post two to five-minute clips of this podcast right here, as well as my syndicate show outside the shop, which I've been doing my top 40 quarterbacks in the NFL. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. For some odd reason, right? If you don't like the pod, then don't say anything because you know what your mama told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And now it's time for one of my monologues that my good friend Kenny Sim loves so very much. So everybody's been talking about if preseason matters, right? The NFL preseason is going on right now. Should preseason be canceled? Is it an injury risk? And I always look at people and I'm like, you're crazy. And the common comeback is, the guys don't need preseason. Tom Brady doesn't need to play preseason. Jalen Ramsey doesn't. Aaron Donald doesn't. Derrick Henry doesn't. Guys like Sean McVay they don't play a soul during preseason. Some guys like Andy Reid play everybody during preseason. I think Patrick Mahomes was playing a quarter plus for the Kansas City Chiefs a few days ago. And then people are like, that's crazy. How could you do that? What if Mahomes gets hurt? Right? So there's different philosophies on it. But I would generally say this. Preseason needs to stay as a whole. Uh, I would say people are right. TJ Watt, he knows how to rush the passer. Probably doesn't need to play for preseason games. Tom Brady knows how to throw the football. In fact, he's the greatest ever at doing it. He doesn't need four preseason games, right? Tom Brady's not going to forget how to throw football. These guys are veterans, superstars. They know what they're doing. And they don't need the extra wear and tear. But the preseason gives value, tremendous value, to 90% of the league. Maybe not the top 10%, but 90% of the league. Backups, young players trying to make a name for themselves, rookies, guys who are trying to vie for practice squads, literally everybody but your all pros and your superstars. The preseason has value for, tremendous value for. And I don't think you should change a system just because it doesn't work out for the top 10%, the top 8%. I think that's stupid. There are people who say, oh, Let's get rid of scholarships and college sports and just pay all the football players. Well, it's like, uh, 
you know, the college scholarship, it works out well for every sport across all divisions except for the top 1% who are college football and basketball players. The college structure doesn't work for somebody like Trevor Lawrence or Zion Williamson, but it literally works for almost everybody else. So why are we going to inherently change the system just for 30 guys? doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense, right? The biggest preseason myth, you can get hurt. Non-contact ACL, that can happen anytime, anywhere. You can be doing a rollout as a quarterback in practice, during a scrimmage, in a preseason game, during a regular season game. If it goes, it goes. That sucks, but also, that's part of life. Get over it. Yes, somebody could roll on your ankle. Somebody can roll on your ankle during a scrimmage. Somebody can roll on your ankle when you're playing against your own teammates in practice. Football is a contact sport. There is inherently always a risk of injury every time you play said sport, right? So the fact is, we have to baby everybody in preseason. But then we can put the pads on and we can thump and we're going to do scrimmage, our, our starting offense versus our starting defense. That, to me, is a little silly, right? Very silly. And it's like, how far do we want to go? There's always the talk about your top college football players. Should they play at all? Because, for example, Bryce Young, quarterback out of Alabama, or CJ Stroud, quarterback out of Ohio State, those guys don't need to play another snap of college football this year, and they will both be top 10 picks. Both those teams, Alabama and Ohio State, are vying for a national championship. It is in their best economic interest and their best football interest to not play. But they're going to play because you want to know what? It's going to make them better at football. The only way to get better at football is to actually play football. And football is a sport. It's not like basketball or baseball where you can just have casual runs or casual games and you can kind of simulate uh, game action. Uh, or like hockey, right? You can't simulate football game action anywhere else but actually on a football field. It can't just be like, hey, how LeBron uh, played in the Drew League. You can't just be like, hey, I'm Tom Brady. I want to play in like the football Drew League. That doesn't exist. So you actually need to play in a game to kind of get those reps. I think it's really good uh, for the young players. I do want to get into this, right? Uh, people talk a lot in sports about development, developing the young guys. Well, you know how you get the young guys better? You have them play football. You have them get those extra reps. Right now with the CBA, players don't get to practice as long as they used to, right? So if you have the ones, the twos, the threes, the fours, or whatever... The fours and threes aren't getting the same amount of reps. Let's say the starters get 10 reps, uh, the second stringers get five reps, the third stringers get three reps, and the fourth stringers get one rep, right? You want to get those third and fourth stringers extra reps. You want to get them maybe 40, 50 snaps in a game if you can. That's valuable. Let's say you're a third string defensive tackle for the Buffalo Bills. You're playing the New York Jets in preseason game four. The Bills are probably going to cut you. Let's say you have four sacks. That could be the game that keeps you on the Bills roster. Or maybe against the Jets, they're so impressed by you, they're like, hey, how about you be on our practice squad? And that gets a guy a job. That's important. That has value. Right? The average fan might not care about that, but that means something. Maybe you're a eight-string wide receiver, have a few good catches, right? And uh, 
you have film on yourself, so you can send it to the Canadian Football League, and you're not in the NFL that year, right? That has value. You want extra reps, there can be film, there are people watching you, there are still scouts watching you. So when people say, oh, preseason, get rid of it, no, you don't need to get rid of it. It's also how you help settle competitions, QB competitions, wide receiver competitions, defensive back competitions. Who's going to actually be our starter? So there are drawbacks to the preseason. I'm not going to deny that. There are drawbacks to literally, quite literally, everything in this world. But there is a lot of value to the preseason. Give another Buffalo Bills example since I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. Josh Allen was in the game, played for one series, then Case Keenum comes in, but the starting offensive line, starting running back, and starting receivers are on the field. You want to know why? Because Sean McDermott wanted Case Keenum to get some reps with the first stringers as the starting QB. Because in case Josh Allen gets hurt, Case Keenum's going to need to, well, play with the first string offense. So there's a lot of value inherently in playing in a preseason game that I don't think people realize. I'll also give another example. I wrestled in college. When I wrestled, we would have um, a little scrimmage wrestling match day. And for that, we would have to make weight that morning and we'd have to wear singlets. And you want to know why? Because we were singlets in competition. We have to make weight the day of competition. Why wouldn't we do that in a practice when we're simulating live matches? The only time that you can play football with thousands of fans screaming 1 p.m. Eastern is when you're playing a football game. And you're going to have to get those reps in during a preseason game. So the preseason is important. It's not important for everybody. Like I said, T.J. Watt, Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald, Tom Brady, Patrick Holmes, those guys probably don't need it. Josh Allen, they don't need it. But the guys who aren't the Hall of Famers, the superstars, the stars, the all pros, the pro bowlers, the 10-year, 10-year starters in this league, everybody else but those guys, they need it. And let's remember, there's 50-plus people on every NFL roster. There's more than just the 22 who start. Just something to think about. Now, cut up next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. We're going to have Greg on the show. Cut up next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports, you can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right, folks, $1,000. Make your first bet up to $1,000, and if it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash in. I know. Great deal, right? You should take it right now. You can throw it out on all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlay spreads, money lines, over-unders, and props, your betting options feel endless. Best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Great deal. Again, should take it, folks. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TPPN. Make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code TPPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Oh, 
with BarbershopSports.com. We have a very special guest with us, Greg Bell. He covers the Seattle Seahawks for the News Tribune. How you doing, man? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. So tell me, who do you think is winning the quarterback competition between Geno Smith and Drew Locke? Well, Geno Smith is so far, but it hasn't been a, comp- a true competition because Drew Locke's had one day as the starting quarterback in practice fully starting offensive line, and that day was the day he also tested positive for COVID-19. So he's been out since then. He was supposed to start the Seahawks preseason game last night against Chicago, but he was home on his couch in quarantine. So Geno Smith started again. They had four three and outs. They were one for their first 11 on third downs. Smith banged his knee, didn't play the first series, the second half of the rest of the starters, J.P. Eason, the deep third quarterback did. So, really, it hasn't started yet. It is almost the end of the preseason, one more game to go, and Drew Locke has yet to be on an even competition level with Geno Smith getting to split the reps with the first team. That's what the quarterback quadri has come for the Seahawks. They've backed themselves into a, a time crunch now having waited this long until just this past Tuesday to give Gina or Drew Locke one's chance. When do you think the Seahawks will name a starter? Well, they don't have to do anything until September 12th when they play Denver in the first game. And the way this has gone, not according to their plan, it might not be who starts the opener as the starting quarterback the rest of the season. But there is 16 days between Seattle's final preseason game and their opener against Russell Wilson's Broncos. So that's 16 days to decide on quarterback. And they necessarily don't need to have settled that by the end of that last preseason game this coming Friday, next Friday, week from today in Dallas. And I think that's where it's going to end up. They're not going to declare any starter after that game, knowing they have two weeks of practices until the first, until the opening. Who do you think is going to get the opening nod against the Denver Broncos first game of the season? I think Drew Lockwell. I think he's been more dynamic. Their offense has been harder to defend in training camp. And albeit when he's running with the twos against reserves on defense, they're harder to defend on the edge. They're multiple. He can escape pressure and extend plays. The athleticism, he likes to play on the edge. Testing contains. He, he just makes the offense more dynamic and doing more. And do you think the end game with all this for the Seahawks is that uh, unless Drew Locke or even Geno does something crazy that they're going to be looking for a quarterback in the upcoming NFL draft? Yes, and not even, no matter what they do, they're going to be. The whole end game when they traded Russell Wilson was, by the end of the 2023 draft, with all the top picks we're now stockpiling, a draft that's loaded with what scouts believe are ready-to-play quarterbacks in the league, that's where they need their quarterback. Not now, because both Lockett and Smith are just under contract for this year, and then their contracts are up. Next year, the Seahawks have four picks in the first two rounds. Under John Carroll, John Schneider, and Pete Carroll, that has not happened. They usually are trading their top picks and stockpiling later round picks. They have never had the arsenal in the Carroll-Schneider regime I have never had the Arsenal draft capital auction with the top of the draft that they're going to have this coming spring. So that's the plan, is that by the end of that draft, they have their guy for the future. 
not necessarily now. Do you think they already know who they're like kind of? Pl- I know it's kind of hard to speculate because the draft is like you know next March or whatever when it is. But do you think they kind of already now have an idea of a guy that uh, they they may be interested in if the opportunity arises? Because right, they do trade Russell Wilson. They now do have this draft capital. Uh, so it would make sense for them to have a guy that they have an inkling on or they have their eye on, right? Of course. And the draft is not a six-month or one-off-season process. They've been scouting guys. They know they have an idea of guys they would like for next year's draft, 2024 class by now. So they have a, a stable of guys, the quarterbacks, they think can fit their system and what they want to do offensively already. And then it'll be from here to there to see where they're actually drafting. How their final college seasons go, what other teams will become interested. When you're drafting as high as the Seahawks with as many picks as they have at the top of the draft, there are more than one team that needs a quarterback every year in the draft. Who do you think that quarterback would be that maybe they could, you could see them particularly taking a liking to? Well, it's really early, and frankly, I don't watch a lot of college football because I'm a little busy in my day job. But a guy like C.J. Stroud, for instance, perhaps. Um, off the top of my head, that's somebody who has athleticism, extending plays, dual threat, the, the kind of guy that Carroll likes to have at that position. They've had with Russell Wilson for 10 years, but he's not the only one, and that's the point. This draft, there was no one the Seahawks thought were worthy of playing right away in the league for them, which is why they, they drafted a left tackle number nine instead of a quarterback, and the rest of the league agreed with them. Teddy Pickett was the first quarterback taken. He was in the 20s. The latest the quarterback was taking about 30 years. So the entire league is on board with it wasn't this year's draft. Next year is when you'll get a quarterback if you need one. And the Seahawks happen to have four picks in the first two rounds and definitely need one. So DK Metcalf, uh, they finally got him his money. They extended him. Uh, Did you ever think for a minute that they wouldn't be able to get a deal done and he would potentially be on the trading block? DK ranks in terms of wide receivers in the NFL? Well, physical talent, he might be the best in physical ability because if he's 6'4", 239 and can jump 40 and a half inches and there's no defensive player on the planet that can do that. So one-on-one-wise, he's in a class by himself, but he still is learning the nuances of, for instance, scramble drills, quarterback in trouble, breaking off his route and getting back to the ball, helping his quarterback getting back to the Tyler Lockett's still better than him at that. 
in Mississippi. He's been there longer. He's done it with Russell Wilson market has for years. Metcalf's still learning back. He still has some emotional outbursts. That's a lot of people chalk up his youth. Uh, getting ejected from the Green Bay game in the last November. Personal foul and unsportsmanlike penalties after plays last season. Now that he's got a $70 million contract, those are the kind of things that the Seahawks would like to see end in his game and become a more well-rounded leader and player. What do you think the plan is for Noah Fan? Well, they got him for two more years because they picked up his fifth-year option. So they're guaranteeing him $9 million for this season and for next. So he's not going anywhere for the next two years. They're going to do a lot, a lot of multiple tight end sets with Will Bisley. They brought him back on a $24 million deal. A lot of people thought he paid higher than they should have for him. But that's because Shane Waldron, the offensive coordinator, who came from the Rams and McVay's system, used to be the tight ends coach there. He wants to use multiple tight ends in multiple ways. They'll split Fan out in the slot. They'll split him out as a wide receiver. They'll have him on the field with Disley. They'll even go three tight ends with Kobe Parkinson, a 6'7 target, who's been injured so far in his career. But they want to go with a lot of tight ends. And maybe why Seattle doesn't do as many wide receiver sets as the rest of the league does. Noah Fan's going to be a big part of that multiple tight end plan. Who are some players in camp and preseason for the Seahawks that have really kind of caught your eye and who you think are going to be able to make a big impact this year? Marquise Goodwin's been very good as a third wide receiver, 31 years old, former 49er, had a 50-plus catch season a couple of years ago, hasn't really duplicated that before or since. He's been very steady, very sure in catching the ball, route running, still has speed, he's a former Olympic track athlete, uh, he's going to be the number three receiver. He's been set back by injury the last week, but he, they, they decided he's the guy. Uh, and the veterans speed guy that Carol likes at wide receiver. The two rookie cornerbacks, Tariq Woolen from Texas San Antonio, he's 6'4", former wide receiver, runs a 4'2", 6'40". Nobody <laughs> Carol has seen is that big to run that fast. He's holding down the starting right cornerback uh, right now and doing very well. One thing they question whether he can tackle, he's done that. He's very good on the ball in the air, and no one can get by him. Not even Marquise Goodwin, they left him. Now, on the other side, Kobe Bryant, left corner, very good. University of Cincinnati, Thorpe went award winner, opposite Sauce Gardner last year. He's been very good on the ball, on passes in the air. So good to make him a corner, nickel corner, inside the slot. Abe Lucas, right tackle, third round pick, Washington State. Very good run blocker, which you're not supposed to do when you're in an overrated offensive tackle. And he's impressed. There's a very good match today in Chicago. He and Charles Cross may be starting as rookie offensive tackles week one. That's only happened twice in the last 45 years in the NFL. So Kobe Bryant, uh, he's going to be starting at nickel then? Not necessarily. They, got, they re-signed Justin Coleman, and they like him a lot. He's the best nickel they've had in a decade out here. Brought him back after he left a few years ago for Detroit. They're just trying to find depth positions to give him, Bryant, more chances to play. He has been starting at times at left corner. Some of that's because of injury to Sidney Jones, who had a concussion and missed about two weeks. Jones didn't play last night either. Uh, he's less, at the moment, less likely to start than Terry Cole on the right side. But they are trying to find ways to get him on the field situationally. He's not starting. 
when did you kind of realize that Tyreek Woolen, like, whoa, like, there's something to this guy? Well, the day I they drafted him and I saw him in a 426. <laughs> I mean, 6'4 guys don't run that fast. And that's the Pete Carroll prototype Richard Sherman corner. Interestingly, they, he also drafted Sherman in the fifth round, like they did Woolen. Sherman was also a college wide receiver, converted halfway through his time in college. Clyde Woolen. He just, the, he was a curiosity in the training camp, even to Pete Carroll. And then he proved himself. He proved himself to tackle in a preseason game so far. He's proven himself with one of the balls in the air, turning his head around, which is sometimes hard for, for the NFL corner to adjust to doing the back shoulder throws. And as I said, DK Metcalf, Marquis Bivin, nobody could go past him. He just doesn't get beat. And sticky, very sticky without committing too many penalties and practices. He's really impressed everybody, and maybe the star of the surprise star of the camp. How's Charles Cross been looking? Their first round pick. Well, he didn't start since the first practice, the first mini camp, left tackle. That's why they let Dwayne Brown walk at his thirty-six. Going on thirty-six. Last night he had five penalties, four false starts, and one was a holding that negated a first down. That's an issue. It's been an issue for Geno Smith leaving the offense all training camp, not just with Carol's Cross, but a lot of linemen. And it's something that the Seahawks have got to work on. They think he's too quick. They call him quick feet, sweet feet is what they call him. They think he's too fast to have to cheat and take a step before the snap to get outside, which was a couple of his penalties last night. Uh, but he's not going anywhere. He's going to be their starter for a while. I just draft picked Seattle's head in 12 years. He's going to play, play and start. It sounds like, from what you're saying, particularly with Kobe Bryant and uh, Tyreek Woolen, that Seattle's trying to uh, recreate kind of like that old Legion of Boom. Do you kind of see that? Well, yeah, of course they'd love to. <laughs> Stylistically, size-wise, yes. And, and Woolen fits, like I said, the Sherman mold. And a six-one Kobe Bryant. Uh, they don't have the safeties uh, history yet. The, Jamal Adams is not can't chance for a strong safety. Although they're paying him $70 million. Quandre Diggs is perhaps their most important defensive player in a clue. Guy who's made the Pro Bowl the last two years and interceptions among the league leaders. He's been very good for them since he came over from Detroit a few years ago at free safety. But they may be trying to stylistically create that because of the taller corners. They went for a couple of years with DJ Reed. They drafted Trey Brown last year, sub six foot guys that. Were exceptions to that mold that Carol likes the long, tall corners. So stylistically, yes, it is a throwback to that original. But they will be hard pressed in the history of their franchise to come up with four guys who did what they Legion of Boom did. Do you think the Seattle's the uh, Seahawks defense the strength is going to be more so the back four than the front seven? Well, it has to be the front seven to get pass rush. Uh, right now, the strength is in the back, but. That they can't survive that way. No team can in the NFL. If you don't get the ball out of the quarterback hands, you're going to get beat for touchdowns and passes no matter who's back there because of the way the rules are. And that was Seattle's problem last year. Only 18 forced turnovers out of the entire season, the fourth fewest in team history. They didn't pressure quarterbacks consistently, and that's why they're going to a 3-4 this year. Pete Carroll's been doing a 4-3 since the early 1970s, and he's going to a 3-4 to be younger and faster at outside linebacker to be those guys to be the pass rusher. The Daryl Taylor, the Chenna and Wosu's, 
they're going to be the pass rushers now. Boy, I'm off the rookie second round pick from Minnesota. No more of this post veteran defensive and Carlos Dunlap, Terry Hyder types, Benson Mayola that they've had here the last couple of years. They've completely changed their defensive front and style to be outside linebacker oriented. And then their up front guys, their three defensive linemen, Puna Ford and Shelby Harris and Al Woods are just going to be space eating run stuffers. Puna Ford can get after the quarterback for his size, but the, the pressure has to come from the outside linebackers, and that's what's made Seattle's defense different. Those guys up front will determine the big defensive group this year. Do you think that the Jamal Adams contract is looked at as a little bit of a mistake? I think it so far has been, but I don't think that that issue settled yet. The price they gave, two first-round picks, rather than Google starting for them at the time, and then the $70 million contract on top of it, they haven't gotten that production, no. And he's been injured. He's been playing only 12 of the regular season games his first two years of the team. Last year, they didn't trust their cornerback so much that they had Adams stay back in coverage with Quandre Diggs, even as a too-high safety look, which Carroll never wants to play. He's a single-high safety pressure guy with a strong safety camp chance or in the box type of guy. This year, they may go to three safeties, with Josh Jones being the third, play a lot of five defensive backs, not necessarily with a nickel, but to free up Jamal Adams to get closer to the line of scrimmage as a third safety was still two back, Jones and Diggs. And that would put Adams in a position to get close to the nine and a half sacks he got two seasons ago when he set an NFL record for defensive backs. That's what they want. For Adams to be part of their pressure package, that's why he's paid $70 million, not to cover guys, but because it's unique around the line of scrimmage. It's like a linebacker for a safety. And they're going to try schematically to change to accommodate what he's best at doing. Are you surprised that the Seahawks decided to reset with Pete Carroll being 70 years of age? No. He's under contract. He's 75. Uh, the owner, the chair, Jody Allen, who inherited the team with Paul Allen, died two years ago. She doesn't want a regime change. She doesn't want to restart. Uh, she's in the middle of an estate sale. Uh, this team may be sold in a couple of years when the estate lawyers get around to the Seahawks asset and what they're going to do with it. She didn't want, in the middle of all that, to change the direction and leadership of the franchise. Pete Carroll is the head above the GM here in Seattle. He's the title of executive president of football operations. They hired him before they hired John Schneider, the first time GM, in January 2010. And she just wants it to be status quo at the top. And a losing season, if you lose again this season, I don't see that changing. And it may take a new owner. It may take his contract running out when he's 75 years old, oldest coach in league history. But so far, all indications and actions by Jody Allen is Pete Carroll can coach here as long as he wants to. And how long do you think Jody Allen is going to be uh, in, in, in charge of the Seahawks? Well, as long as the estate runs it. And she is the trust holder of the estate. And the estate has been selling its assets all over the place philanthropic interest and space travel and more than just football and they just haven't gotten around to the Seahawks part of that estate apparently they've gotten around to the Trailblazers in Portland on the NBA team enough that there have been rumors of Pete Byers and Phil Knight wanting a $2 billion deal for him but it hasn't gotten that way to the Seahawks so it really is, depends when the estate the review of the estate by the lawyers uh, gets to the Seahawks it's just another line item in a 
a state that's gigantic. I mean, a guy has tens of billions of dollars in assets, one of the world's richest guys. The Seahawks are just another blip on, on that big, big universe that Paul Allen had. So there's no deadline or urgency or having to move it out or any of that along the lawyers and people that are settling this estate. So they really are. There's no dead timeline and there's no fixed deadline if they have to get something like this done. But as long as Jody is in charge, you're saying that Pete Carroll's there. Yes. And, and that is a piece through the 2020, what is it, 2026 season, 2025 season tail signed to. John Schneider, GM, is signed through 2026 draft. And she just wants it the same. She resigned them both last year at about the same time as her brother Paul Allen had been for 10 years or so. She doesn't want to change. And so as long as Jody Allen is in charge, all signs are that Pete Carroll be here as long as they want. Even if the team struggles. Yes. And because well, first of all, Jody Allen is not a football person. Yes, she wants to see the team win. But she's a businesswoman inheriting a, a fortune from in a, a state from her brother. So it's not like Jerry Jones where you win now and sitting in the press box telling who should play and it's not that. She's she's the, the approver of contracts and uh, it's Jody Allen and I mean, uh, Pete Carroll and John Schneider talk often about how supportive and involved she is in big deals, direction of the club, but she's not the type of owner that's going to be dictating football decisions and, and getting in the way of the people she's hired to run that, and that's why she's keeping on status quo with the people that her brother trusted to have the best 10 years of Seahawks football and the only Super Bowl title. When it comes to Pete... What do you think his plan is? Like, what, 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 when do you think in his ideal head, when are the Seahawks back to being contenders again and being a threat in the NFC West and making playoff appearances? Well, when you hear him talk, it's, he's never, he doesn't acknowledge a rebuild. Uh, he thinks they can compete this year when they remake the defense with young chip on the shoulder guys and be faster, and that, that would mitigate the quarterback position. But when you send away your franchise quarterback, $150 million, $40 million quarterback who's got your only Super Bowl ring, you've regressed, and you're rebuilding. And their quarterback situation right now shows proves that. So, realistically for him, next year, they would probably be in a position with a new quarterback and a direction for the future next year to contend back to the playoffs. If Geno Smith and or Drew Locke absolutely wow them and exceed their career pedigree so far, and then they could be in a wild card situation. They also happen to be in still what I think is the toughest division in football and against teams that are well-stocked talent-wise, defense, especially in San Francisco and the Rams, that um, they could be – they, they're not going to fall off the map competitively, I don't think, but they could be a good team that can't make the playoffs in the division they're in. When we talk about Pete, uh, I feel like a lot of people as a coach, like Pete's starting to fall down, like who's the best coach in the NFL, and Pete's starting to go down little by little by little. Where would you rank Pete in terms of coaches in the NFC West? Um, probably for second. Sean McVay's not the Super Bowl champion, and you can't argue with success and what he's done and his style and bringing in Matthew Stafford and talent he uh, has accumulated. Uh, Kyle Shanahan has been beset by injuries. Uh, he definitely has a great offensive mind and needs to work the quarterback to trade Lance to see if he can 
use the system, but uh, still younger. Uh, I would. The detail is about the intangibles. It's all about the results and X's and O's. It's personal relationship with players, uh, how they respect and enjoy him, the environment that he creates out here with the music and Will Ferrell and all the practice guests, how loose it is, and how people. Uh, players from other teams come here and marvel at the environment that he has. The former players like Doug Baldwin and KJ Wright, Cliff Averill, and Chancellor, even Richard Sherman here this month that have come back and live here still in Seattle and are around the team. All of that just makes Pete Carroll his system what it is, who, they are, who he is, and what it is. And that is unique. Um, at the moment, if you say based on results, he's probably second to Sean McVay. I'm talking results over the last four or five, six years. Uh, but it's the intangibles, the things that people can't really measure or see in the standings that make Carroll what he is and why he's been here so long. When Russell Wilson was traded, did you, th- did you think it was time? No. I, I thought they should have held on him for another year. <laughs> At least if he was still disgruntled and wanted traded, traded next year when his contract was ending, they may have gotten less for him which is why they ultimately decided to do it. But they didn't have to do that deal. He had a no-trade cause. He only accepted Denver, and they could have said, too bad. We're not sending it to Denver. You're playing for us. So uh, it wasn't that they had to do it. They decided to do it, for, certainly for Russell Wilson. He thought it was time. But I don't think the Seahawks said, uh, no, it wasn't time. It was, they didn't have to do that. It would be a better team, obviously, right now if they hadn't done that. They were staring at the end of the 2023 season, him wanting $50 million a year and well in excess of $100 million guaranteed. The Aaron Rodgers deal, Packers gave Rodgers this offseason, and ultimately the Seahawks just decided we're not going to do that. And John Schneider said we were under the impression that Wilson was going to leave after next year. Anyway, Wilson and his camp vehemently denied that ever, that ever came up, but he made, it, he made the Seahawks think he was going to be leaving, so... They traded him for what they thought was a pretty good King's Ransom of three players and top draft pick. Do you think that it was more so the fact they didn't want to pay him or more so the fact that Russ just wanted to leave? Well, it was both. Because if Wilson didn't want to leave, he wouldn't have left. He had a no-trade clause. So it wasn't like he could have stayed. He couldn't have stayed even if he'd kicked and screamed to sell him in Seattle. The bottom line was he wanted to leave. The other bottom line that made it happen was the Seahawks made the deal to let him leave. They didn't have to do that. Like I said, he's under contract for two more seasons. So ultimately, yes, he wanted to leave. And the fact that he wanted to leave and he was going to cost so much to the future, that that was what the Seahawks made that decision. They were looking at a $50 million a year quarterback into his mid-30s. I know the salary cap's going up and all of that, but if you're doing that with a guy who doesn't want to be here, I can see the reasons why Seattle would start thinking about moving them. But competitively, I thought they could have waited through this year and and played with him and then traded him before next season, maybe for less, to get back, which is why they didn't do it. Why do you think Russ wanted to leave? He talked many times, and I, we've talked to him, I've talked to him, I've talked to JT quite a bit. Many times he's talked about his legacy. He wants to win multiple more Super Bowls. He wants to approach Tom Brady as a best who's ever done it with the most rings and that window's closing and he wanted to do it in a place he thought he could win really sooner than later sooner than he could in Seattle 
was he saw the age of the Legion of Boom, the defense changing. Uh, he saw the team changing, the offensive line problems that it's had. He thought a chance to win in Denver with John Elway, giving him the keys to the franchise and giving him the $50 million a year. And Daniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator of Aaron Rodgers, the new head coach in Denver. He saw Denver as the opportunity to both get paid and have a better chance to win more quickly. And so the legacy piece of where am I going to be in five years as Super Bowl wins in history, that, that's really what his, was in the front of his mind. But rebuilds happen so quickly, you know, in an NFL cycle. I mean, there's no guarantee in three years that if he would have stayed in Seattle that there's any difference between whether wherever he is in Denver in three years. Right. But Denver had, you could believe, before the deal was even done, although they deny it, Denver had the willingness to pay him $50 million a year or whatever he wanted. Uh, the parameters of that next contract they've obviously spoken about before that trade happened which is why Denver was attracted to him. So, giving him carte blanche, remaking the offense, the let Russ cook, all of that, that Denver's willing to do on top of paying him at the top of the league at the quarterback position, that's why he wanted to leave. So Seattle said, okay, we'll go with near minimum salary at that position like we did when Russell Wilson was on his rookie contract, and we'll spend our money on D.J. Metcalf, and on Jamal Adams and Quandre Diggs and everybody else and build our team that way, which is how they won the Super Bowl 10 years ago. So that was the decision they made with a quarterback who was going to be 34, 35, 36 years old for the next contract. And then that's why they did what they did. It didn't make him any better for this year or right now, though, and that's the problem for fans out here. When did you start to sense that the relationship between Russ and Seattle started getting started getting sour and started thinking, yeah, maybe things aren't as kosher as other people would think? Well, not until very late in the game. And I've been told, again, I've talked both sides of this, and it was right around the combine in March when Denver stepped up and told the Seahawks that they would be interested in his week of Gidget. That's the really the only time the Seahawks made this possible. Now, Wilson was unhappy a year ago. We were on a conference call for the Baltic Big Man of the Year in 2021 in February, and he said, I'm frustrated. I, I asked him, point by, are you frustrated with the Seahawks? Because there was reports and he made comments on Dan Patrick's show and other places that he was frustrated. And I asked him, are you frustrated with the Seahawks? He said, I'm frustrated with getting hit so much. And in reference to his offensive line and taken the most sacks in the NFL in that decade. And that was the first time publicly he acknowledged that he was not happy and that he wasn't happy with how they were building a team around him. So 2021 was the first time you got inclinations that uh, he wasn't going to be here forever necessarily guaranteed like it seemed at that point. How many elite years do you think Russell Wilson has left in the NFL?
played every snap of every game in his entire career for 11 years until last November, last October. So that a lot of people that say, well, Wilson Wilson's done or finished, watch him. <laughs> He's only had three games of injury that, that has sidetracked him from otherwise was another Pro Bowl caliber season last year. So everybody always talks about uh, the cover three Seattle scheme that they ran at the height of their powers, right? When you had like Richard, Cam, Earl, uh, Bennett, uh, Bobby Wagner, and all of these guys. What do you think made that defense so special and unique from some of the other great defenses of all time, whether it be like the uh, Baltimore Ravens with Ray Lewis in 2000 or those no-fly zone Denver Broncos and... um, when they won it in uh, 2015, what do you kind of think, or, or when the Bears won it, uh, what do you think makes that defense uh, different or more unique than some of the other great defenses in the history of the game? Probably the how basic and simple it was schematically. They lined up in a 4-3, like you said, cover three with two, uh, single high safety and a safety in the box. And they put their corners on the line of scrimmage and slapped receivers in the mouth coming off the line and stayed sticky with them. And they were long, tall receivers, Jeremy Lane and uh, Richard Sherman, like I talked about, 32-6263 guys. And they were just basic. They knew every team in the league knew what Seattle was running, and they never varied from it. They got their pressure from their front four, from, you mentioned, Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett and Tony McDaniel and Red Bryant. Those guys got all the pressure. They had eight, nine, ten defensive linemen who could pressure the quarterback. You didn't need the blitz. So that, could, that allowed them to have seven in coverage, including linebackers, including nickelbacks, without blitzing. And the numbers were in Seattle's favor. The talent was in Seattle's favor. They had a, a swagger about them. And they were all under rookie deals. They had struck it rich in the draft with Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas and, and Richard Sherman. And they, Michael Bennett was a formerly undrafted player. Jeff Averill had come from Detroit in the 0-16 team. They were cheap and inexpensive, so they could buy more talent in other positions they needed. Uh, you think about the Ravens and Ray Lewis, the contract he was on, and the Bears' 46 defense, the pressure that they had at the front of Hampton. And, and I, I think about how different those teams were schematically in pressuring and attacking, and Seattle didn't do that. Seattle had its front four all the pressure. And what made the Legion of Boom so good was that pressure up front. The fact that they didn't have to cover for long because Seattle was getting after quarterbacks so much. They, they were doing hockey line changes of defensive linemen in the second half of games against tired offensive linemen and just beat them. That's the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Their offensive line was exhausted early in the game while Seattle was throwing 10 defensive linemen at all could rush the quarterback at him. They will never have that many front four, front three defensive linemen who can rush the quarterback that they had in that era. They've been trying to replicate that since, and they haven't. But when you can cover with seven, and three of them are Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas, uh, you're going to be pretty good. And it, the uniqueness of Seattle's defense back then was how simple they were in scheme. Lined up, and everybody knew what it was, and yet nobody could beat it because of how good the Jimmys and Joes were. The X's and O's were so basic. Yeah, and it's really interesting, too, because, like, everybody tries to run the Seattle scheme now. The 49ers have kind of tried to adopt it. Everybody's kind of uh, The Cleveland Browns run it. Like, everybody's trying to do it. 
But to your point, I think what's really interesting is sometimes I think in football we always talk about, you know, the schematical advantage, right? Like, and sometimes it's as simple as just, okay, our guys are bigger, faster, stronger, and better shaped than you. We're going to keep it really simple, and everybody's just going to do what they do at an A-plus level, no trickery, and beat us. Exactly. You just described Seattle from 2011 to 2015. Exactly. And, and their Jimmys and Joes were better than any X's and O's you could draw up and think of. Not anymore. And that's why they're going to the 3-4, because Seattle's Jimmys and Joes are not as good anymore. So their X's and O's have to get better. The Legion of Boom being way gone and all that. And, and, and that's why you see the schematic change. When Seattle was at their height and they were uh, with the Legion of Boom and uh, they won a Super Bowl, if I were to give you four people that were the most responsible for it, who would those four be? Uh, Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, Russell Wilson, and Marshawn Lynch. Okay. That's a good Marshawn time. Lynch was the soul. Marshawn Lynch and Chancellor were the souls of those people. The locker room. The style of play, the attitude, the swagger. Can Chancellor redefine the strong safety position? Then the NFL didn't play strong safeties that close to the line of scrimmage in the box and as an extra linebacker against the run. And never saw a safety hit like that. Uh, and how he just butchered tight ends. And he just redefined the spots. And for about three or four years, the league had never seen anything like him. He was a former college quarterback when he was a freshman at Virginia Tech. And he ended up a fifth-round pick, and <laughs> yet another jackpot in the draft early in the Carroll Schneider regime. But out here, he gets a lot of credit. But nationally, I don't think people really appreciate the impact Ken Chancellor had, not just on the Seahawks, but on the entire league for a few years. Where would you rank uh, Seattle's home field advantage uh, in comparison to some of the other ones? I know everybody talks about, like, Arrowhead. Uh, I think people talk about the Bills, the Patriots, uh, Denver. Uh, where would you rank Seattle's home field advantage? Well, it's been definitely diminished, and it has to do with the team not being as good. Um, it's not on the par of Arrowhead. I've been there many times, and Arrowhead affects the game more directly. There, the noise with the cantilever roofs, uh, the rain, sideways rain in December and January, that's the advantage. And when the teams were good and the defenses were good and the noise, that's when it got its reputation. They have not been good on the home in the last couple seasons. I mean, they lost a 17-12 game to a really bad Giants team two seasons ago, and uh, losing multiple games at home the last few, each of the last few seasons. So uh, that vaunted Seattle home field advantage has gone away. It's not that the people here have changed; it's that the teams and players have, and they're just not as good. So it <laughs> stands a reason that. Uh, they're not going to win as many games no matter where they play. So, uh, I don't. It's obvious in the last couple of years that Seattle's home field advantage is not going to win their games by themselves. When they were really good and had it rolling, then yes, that added to the factor of opposing false starts and all of that. Minnesota was a very loud stadium and, and tough for offenses to think in, especially now that it's domed. And, uh, it, that place is rocking. Now it's still. The loudest place I've been in the NFL, and, uh, and I'd say Minnesota's ranks pretty up there too. So for you, so you mentioned Arrowhead, right? You're just like Arrowhead. What makes Arrowhead so unique? 
Well, the, the way the stadium's built, it's very tall and stands the upper deck or over top of the field. The noise goes straight down. Um, the fandom, they draw from the Dakotas, from Montana, uh, all over the place. They're a regional team. You know, they're stuck in a place right in the middle of the country with now that the St. Louis Rams are gone, there's no other team with them there. And they draw from a large swath of people who travel far and wide, who get there the night before and tailgate, and have had, even in a morning noon kickoff, have had a few pops by the time the kickoff starts. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a well-lubricated, loud crowd even before the game starts. And then, of course, the last half dozen years, the team's been Super Bowl caliber, and then on top of it. But uh, the unique structure of the building, it's just uh, – it's a neat place for having been built in the late 60s, early 70s and to be still that uh, influential in the game. And, I mean, nobody that I know of is saying, let's tear down Arrowhead and get a better stadium because of how good that place is. What's your, the favorite game you've ever covered? What's your most favorite game you've ever gotten a chance to cover? been like a funny or interesting moment you've ever had with a player or a story you've ever heard that you were like wow that's just crazy or and very interesting oh man <laughs> so many I've been doing this for 20 some years um, Marshawn Lynch once um, he was at a gas station in suburban Seattle and he found somebody's wall he was pumping gas and he was with a teammate and he found a wallet on the ground next to the gas pump, and he picked it up and opened the 
Earth. He'd come straight from the gas station to his home, and Marshawn Lynch dropped it off and gave him his wallet. And the guy's like, you're Marshawn Lynch? <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, things like that, you wouldn't think about Marshawn Lynch and how he was for the city of Oakland and hosting. He would fly kids up at his expense from Oakland, inner city Oakland, to come to the Seahawks on Saturdays when the media wasn't allowed to be there the day before a game and show them around, give them signed footballs, give them jerseys, have them meet everybody. Uh, stuff you just don't know and hear about. Russell Wilson went to Children's Hospital in Seattle every Tuesday for 10, 11 years. In season, out of season, after Monday night road games, my wife works at Children's Hospital and he didn't just go for photo ops. She was in the sickness of the sick wards, the cancer wards, the birth centers mopping up and contagious infectious disease units, uh, affecting families and cheering them up, and really cool humanitarian stories that, uh, again, people don't think about when they're watching football games. Those are the ones that come to mind. <laughs> now that I'm older and I'm dead kids, those mean more to these than wins and losses and exes and uh, stories like that. So you say Marshawn and Cam were definitely the leaders of those Seahawks teams, right? I said they were the souls. Okay. They, they were they were the souls of those teams. They were the ones that the, the team heartbeat was centered on. Um, they were beloved. Uh, so, yeah, they were leaders. I'm not saying they led the team so much as they were the core of the team and the souls of those teams. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for the time. And once again, I want to thank Greg for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in to this episode of the 471st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk. Till I'm on my